Woodrow Wilson. Some of you might remember him. <laughs> I don't think that was a very good beginning. It didn't really come out. He said, I told you, you don't know what's going to come out of this sermon. He told this story, and I'm going to quote him. He said, I was sitting in a barber chair when I became aware that a man had come quickly into the barber shop to have his hair cut. And he sat in the chair next to me, and every word the man uttered showed a personal interest in the man who was serving him. And before I got through with what was being done for me, I was aware that I had attended an evangelistic service because D.L. Moody was in that chair. He was a Chicago evangelist. I purposely lingered, President Wilson said, in that room after he left, and I noted the singular effect that his visit had brought upon the barbershop. They talked in undertones. They talked in whispers, muted, sober words. They didn't know his name, but they knew something had elevated their thoughts. And I'm going to say that again. They did not know his name, but they knew that something had elevated their thoughts. And I felt that I left that place as I should have left the place of worship. And my admiration and esteem for Mr. Moody became very deep indeed. So here we go. You ready? Well, I, hope you, I hope you ask yourself this question that I'm about to ask you, one that I'm asking myself. Are we impacting the people around us for Jesus Christ? When they come away from spending time with us, are their thoughts elevated? I mean, honestly, don't just let that be a really interesting question. Ask yourself, brace yourself for the answer. When they leave your presence, is there admiration and esteem? Not only deep for you, but deep for Jesus. Well, here's what Jesus teaches us, and he starts in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, Matthew 5, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Well, I'm going to have three points for you, and here's the first. The disciples of Jesus Christ are the salt of the earth. Well, look what he says in verse 13. Very simply, you are the salt of the earth. Now, that's Really not that difficult. And look at me for just a second, because I think I have some actually pretty good news for you. This is a very simple sermon. There's really nothing complicated about this. You are the salt of the earth. He's specifically addressing Jesus is his disciples. Now listen, look at me. He's not speaking at this moment to the multitude all around. He is speaking to his disciples, those who have left everything to follow him. The disciples are, look at the word, you are the salt of the earth. Not will be one day when you get more mature in your faith. You are salt, and he's going to say you are light, 
now. If you are in Christ, if you are a disciple of Jesus, you are salt. Importantly, it's not even a command to be salt and light. I want you to look at it carefully. It's a declaration that they already are salt. And he's going to say it again. They already are light. It's not a command. It's simply a declaration. What he is doing in this passage is he is calling his disciples, he's calling us to live in the world as his followers whom he is changing to be like him. Now, I want to remind you, because you might not have been here for the series in the Beatitudes, verses 3 through 12. So let me walk you through very briefly what we learned. Do you remember verse 3, that the disciples of Jesus are poor in spirit? They're empty. What that means is they're emptied of any confidence in their own self-righteousness. There's nothing in me that God is pleased with in my natural self. There's nothing in me that God said, you know what? I will save you because you try really hard. I'll save you because you just did some really good things. There's nothing. We're emptied of self-righteousness. Listen, you come to Jesus for salvation with absolutely empty hands. But he moves on. Disciples of Jesus must mourn over our sin. If you're not yet learning to mourn when God opens up your eyes and shows you your sin that moves you to repentance, then you're not yet progressing in the Christian life. You may even want to question if you're saved because the disciples of Jesus are sensitized to sin and it moves them to repent, to be emptied of any belief in their own goodness. And they must be meek, no longer self-reliant. It's not about picking yourself up off the ground spiritually by your bootstraps. It's not that you try harder and you attain a moral level that you didn't have before. That doesn't work. It must be the work of God in you. His power is at work when we are yielded, when we are broken, when we are meek before the master, Jesus. And continually emptied of ourselves, we begin to hunger. We begin to thirst for righteousness. We want to be filled with righteousness. We don't want to keep sinning. We hate the sin that we see. We're pleading with God. God, do a work. Fill my heart with new desires. Let me love what you love. Let me hate what you hate. It's a desire to become like Jesus. And that filling produces hearts full of mercy that are on display towards the suffering all around you. It's the display of suffering to those who need it. It's, mercy. it's the display of mercy to those who are suffering. And we are continually being filled with purity. So what that means is that our hearts, which are double-minded, hearts that want one thing but does another, hearts that know what we ought to do but do not do it. That's double-mindedness. Well, the heart of purity is a heart that's becoming single-minded so that we live out our faith. So we're filled with mercy. We're filled with single-mindedness. And merciful, pure hearts become peacemakers. You know what that means, right? Those who are being filled with God's shalom can dispense it to other people, can wade into conflict and are able to bring a rest to that conflict and to a peace through that conflict. But peacemakers are going to know very quickly, and some of you know this very deeply, you are going to experience persecution. You walk into conflict 
with the peace of God, and the anger of two people will shift to you often. And you're going to need to learn to be able to endure persecution. Now, these are all the virtues that make up the Beatitudes. And Jesus has been teaching them. And what he's been saying is this. And I want you to look at me. This is so far the most important thing I'm going to tell you. What Jesus is showing us is exactly what his heart looks like perfectly. All of those Beatitudes, all those virtues, Jesus possesses them perfectly. And he's showing you and he's showing me. This is what I'm doing in you. This is the work of transformation. This is the goal. I'm going to make you like me. And your heart will be filled with all of these virtues as well. In increasing measure as you walk with him. But he has a calling for us. He's given us his disciples, every single one of us, a calling. This is how I want you to live in the world. I want you to be my disciple, and if you're going to be my disciple, you're going to be the salt of the earth, and you're going to be the light of the world, meaning the world, the peoples all over the earth, not just those who are in your immediate proximity, but those whom you can influence even across the oceans or across this land. But the question naturally braces us to answer, what is salt? Well, we know what salt is, but why does he bring that metaphor into the conversation? Why does he draw on the metaphor of salt? So let's get a little bit of a background of what salt was used for in biblical days. And there's so many of them. I'm just going to give you a sampling, and we'll see how that metaphor relates to us. Salt was a medicine. It was used to fight infection. Part of the diet of salt was to keep them healthy. Without salt, you will die, especially in that arid, hot land. Salt was used for newborn babies. They would actually rub the baby. Oh, we could do that maybe tonight. (laughs) I just thought of this. If only Danielle and Rich would be obedient to the Word of God. But they would rub the baby with salt, and what that would do is get the amniotic fluid out of the creases of the baby. They believed that the salt hardened the skin, helping the baby to resist infection. Soldiers, this is interesting, by the way, soldiers training and battling in that heat were often paid in salt. Did you know that? In fact, the word salary comes from a Latin word translated salt money. If a soldier didn't get his salt money, he would desert the army. It was that crucial. It was that critical. It gave rise, by the way, to the, to the statement that we've all probably heard, he isn't worth his salt. He's not worth what he's being paid. Salt was a fertilizer for crops. It helped their crops grow. They would sprinkle it onto their land. However, and there is one example in the scripture of a king that conquered a people and he raised the land, R-A-Z-E-D. He he liberally scattered salt and he rendered the ground infertile. That's how they would subjugate their enemies at times. So a little bit of salt really, really helps the crops grow. A lot of salt takes the life out of the soil. 
But all of those are interesting, and there's a lot more, many more uses of salt in the Bible in biblical days. But salt was mainly used for two reasons. You ready? And if you're taking notes, this is what you want to remember. It was mainly used as a seasoning because the food was often bland. It was meant to spice up their food. And secondly, it was used as a preservative to slow down decay. Not only in food, but especially in food. They didn't have refrigeration. But not only in food, it slowed down decay and infection. In fact, years ago, not too long ago, there was a family that went camping in the United States, and the campground that they were at was infested with slugs. So the man, the father, went to the camp store, bought some bags of salt, and he sprinkled around in a circle a layer or a line, rather, of salt. They went to bed. He got up in the morning, and there were no slugs but maybe three of them within the entire perimeter of that salt. And the three of them, he actually said three, the three of them that made it through the salt circle died within inches. So salt is used... To slow down decay, it's a preservative. It is powerful. So being, now let's, meta, let's take this metaphor to us. Being the salt of the earth for us as his disciples. If you put your faith in Jesus exclusively, listen, not in Jesus plus your good works, not in Jesus plus your family pedigree, why come from a long line of religious people. No, it's Jesus alone. If you put your faith in Jesus to save you, that he takes your sins from you on that cross and he gives you instead his righteousness. And not only a deposit of righteousness that you will never outspend, he continually streams his righteousness into you. He makes you right before God. Listen, you are Christian right before God. You are justified. The devil makes accusations, but he has no legal grounds over you at all. So if you're a Christian... If you put your faith in Jesus, you are the salt of the earth, and you must, I hope you hear this, and I must live in such a way that we inhibit moral corruption all around us and help people taste the goodness of God. That's the uses of salt that Jesus mostly had in mind. And that can only happen when Christians live in the world, but are not worldly. We are not of the world. We're not running after the things of unbelievers. We're distinct from them. Now listen, the power of a salty life lies in our distinction from those in the world. Now I want to tell you, I want to ask you rather, do people see you as distinct from unbelievers? Now, this is another question you've got to brace yourself. You might as well answer it honestly because God already knows the answer. But if you're lined up against the wall and an unbeliever knows you and everybody else against that wall, would they say that you are distinct from the unbelievers against that wall? Does your life mark a distinction? I love what Martin Lloyd-Jones, he's one of the best preachers that I think has ever been behind a pulpit. He wrote, the glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. 
It is then that the world is made to listen to her message, though it may hate it at first. Listen, if you blend into the world, you blend into your unbelieving friends and coworkers and neighbors and schoolmates, you have no power in your witness. You will not influence anybody. The calling that Jesus is giving us in this passage is the calling of distinction. My disciples are the salt of the earth. Do you realize that not any unbeliever can be called the salt of the earth? Not one. Why is that? Well, let me kind of get you towards that a little bit. Like salt's fertilizing qualities, Christians encourage the growth of good wherever they live. The city will prosper because of the righteous in it. That's what Proverbs says. Let your speech always be gracious. What does Paul say? Seasoned with salt. Put a little bit of good tasting spice for an otherwise bland conversation. Season with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Now, I want you to see that. Look at that screen for a little bit. I want you to focus on that. Salt is likened to grace. And perhaps Paul, it's not to Paul, it's not so much what you ought to answer. That's commonly how we interpret this. So that you will know what to answer. No, you will know how you ought to answer. And how you ought, ought is a little bit different than what you ought. How you ought is with grace, with kindness, with concern, with love, with mercy, with confidence. It's the salt seasoned believers' communication. So are we salty Christians? Are we faithfully telling unbelievers all around us the way to be saved for eternal life? For eternal life. Are we telling people that? Now listen, that's what it means to be salt. It's not that you live, and we're going to see this in a moment, it's not that you just live in a good way. By the way, do you know unbelievers can do that? Unbelievers can outgood us often. You've got unbelievers giving massive amounts of money to children who don't have food. You've got unbelievers doing a lot of work for homeless people. A lot of good deeds are coming out of unbelievers. So what sets us apart when we do good things? What makes us salty and they can't be salty? Well, here's the, here's the secret. The salty Christian ends not with glory to us, but with glory to God. You see, the unbeliever does really good things, and they look amazing, right? But the disciple of Christ lives in a salty way, and our God looks amazing. And that is something the unbeliever cannot do. Jesus gives us a warning, however, if you want to look at your text. But if salt has lost its taste... How shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, here's an interesting part of salt. It's called a stable compound. It literally cannot lose its taste. It can't lose its flavor. But there is a problem with Israel's salt. And so I want to give you a little bit of a deep dive on this. It was harvested from the salt marshes south west of the Dead Sea. If you've ever been to the Dead Sea, which I have not, 
But if you go and float in the Dead Sea, you can't get yourself to sink to the bottom. Its salt content keeps you to the surface. So all around the marshes, they harvested the salt. They were actually salt farmers. But when they harvested the salt, it was mixed with gypsum and dirt and other minerals. And when that salt was exposed to the rain and the sun, the salt crystals washed away and the mixture became more gypsum than salt. And at that point, it became worthless, good for nothing. And all what they did two main things with it. They threw it out in the street to absorb moisture and they threw it onto the roofs of their homes so that grass would not grow. So what Jesus is saying is this, if a Christian is mixed with a love for the things of this world, adhering, now listen, you got to hear this, buying, buying, listening, believing the world's philosophies, running after materialism, just like people in the world, well, they're going to lose their preserving, seasoning influence. They're not giving people a taste of God. Why? Because they're utterly not distinct from the unbeliever. It's in our distinction that we have influence. It's when Salt is not mixed with gypsum and with dirt and other minerals. When it's refined and holy, that's when it's most flavorful and brings the most pleasure to the food. Now listen, this is not, by the way, a hint, as some have taken it, that you can lose your salvation. I've had people so scared reading this. This is Jesus saying that if I don't live for him, then he's going to throw me out and I'm going to get trampled. That's not what it means. You're going to lose your effectiveness. You're going to lose your distinction. You're not good for anything. You're not doing anything in the kingdom of God if you lose your distinction, your salty flavor. Our society needs salty Christians. Is it not morally escalating into decay? Can you not sense that all around you? I'm 50 years old. I cannot believe what is happening in our nation and around the world. And those of you who are older than I am, you cannot believe it either. I have conversations with you. The church must rise up, and our power is to be an influence in our society when we are distinct, when we hold fast to Jesus Christ. But he goes on, disciples of Jesus are the light of the world, point number two. Very simply, I told you this was a simple message. You are the light of the world, he says. Well, that's kind of confusing because in John 8, 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. But then he goes on, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So Dr. Barnhouse once said, it's like this. It's the sun that possesses the light. It's the moon that reflects it. This is really where Jesus is going, and I think he's right. The disciples of Christ are the lights of this world. Listen, why? Because we are in Christ and Jesus Christ is in us. The light is in us. You cannot fabricate the light. You cannot manufacture it. It's only got one source, its name, and his name is Jesus. And when he lives in us, all of a sudden that light begins to operate. And sometimes the light of Christ in us is going to be a warm, welcome sight for the people that we encounter. Other times it's going to incite the hatred of the world 
And Jesus himself experienced it. Now I want you to think of something for a moment. I think maybe, to me at least, this is the second most important thing I'm going to tell you. Christian, brother and sister, you are strategically placed. Where you work, where you live, the family that God ordained you to live in before he created this world, he has ordained all of that. Very strategically, he has called you out of darkness and set you into the light so that you are children of the light. He has put you precisely where you are. You don't like your family? God put you there for a reason. You're tired of your job? God has you there for a reason. Quit looking for your escape route. Let him bring it. Don't you try to force his hand. You're tired where you live? You're tired of your school? You're tired of your college? You're tired of your athletic teammates? Listen, you are right where God wants you to be. You've got a calling to be salt and to be a light because he puts his lights only in dark places. Why would a... Why would a bright place need a light? This is God's wisdom to put you where you are so that you can become an influencer. Now, if you lose your distinction, you're ineffective. You're as good as salt that just can only be put out in the street or up on the roof. But he's got you where he wants you. And Jesus goes on, verse 14, The city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. So let's give three main ways that light is used. There's more, but let me give you a few. Light was meant to be seen, obviously, to illuminate. Why else possess it? Why else would you want a flashlight? It's for when your lights go out, when you need to see in a dark place. Now, their lamps were commonly like a gravy saucy, sauce boat. And some of you understand what that means. Well, that's just what it looks like. These, that's an ancient lamp that they've recovered, or a picture of one, filled with oil. And then at the spout is a wick. And that lamp would be put on a branch, usually, a wooden stand, almost always made from wood, and it would light up the house. It was elevated to light up the house. By the way, they spent most of their day outdoors, even their evening, not in the house. But when they needed to be in the house, they had lamps. And because they were often difficult to light, they usually kept them burning all day. And instead of leaving to go about their career, their job, their, their errands, and leave a lamp burning in a house and risk a fire, they would take an earthenware bushel measure basket and they would flip it over the lamp. That's how they protected it during the day as it continued to burn. And what Jesus is saying is this, when you're up on the stand, you are illuminating, you are living the way you are designed to live. Your function, your calling is an operation. But if you're going to not live in distinction, if Christ is not going to be seen through your life, well, how can that happen? Well, somebody says a dirty joke and you give the obligatory laugh or maybe even return a joke. Or if you're not going to be a distinction and somebody's cheating in school and you help yourself to the same cheating method, you're not a lamp. You might call yourself a Christian, but you're not illuminating anything. There's a bushel basket that's been put over you and you have no purpose in the kingdom of God at that moment. 
We make Christ's light visible in the way that we talk on the phone when we try to resolve billing issues with very difficult companies. We make Christ's light visible with our responses when a boyfriend or a girlfriend wants to do more than just sit on a couch holding hands. Well, obviously, in both of those, you're not making Christ's light visible at all. And the way you make it visible in both of those contexts, and there's literally thousands of them that we could talk about, is take the bushel basket off and say, no, I will not do anything more than hold your hand. No, I will not let my temper get the best of me, even though I'm not making progress in this phone call. No, I will not cheat on my taxes, though I don't know how we're going to pay the bills that we've got coming up. No, I'm not going to go into massive debt just to get what I want, but I don't need. This is all what the world does. We're distinct people of God. We are Christians. And if you want your light to shine and illuminate, you must be different. Well, light was also a guide. You know, I read that Israel's villages and towns were, and they still are commonly, built on hilltops. Why? Well, for several reasons. Defensibility, obviously. Breeze for threshing grain is up on the hilltop. They always built their threshing floors up on the tops of hills, but also a breeze for cooling. But in addition to those three reasons, it's so that travelers could see them. They describe it walking through the land of ancient Palestine, such a beauty when you begin to approach Jerusalem, lit up at night, high on that plateau, houses in Israel, headlamps. And they often only had one round window, maybe square, usually 18 inches across. Windows were not in vogue. They weren't really needed. We've got to make the way clear. Now, here's the application. We've got to make the way clear for unbelievers to find their way to Christ. We are the city set on a hill. We ought to be high and lifted up so that when people see the way that we live, see the way that we speak, watch the way that we take and conduct our Sunday mornings or our Saturday evenings, when they watch the way that we spend money. I mean, listen, doesn't it ever strike you that when you give generously to your church, you're not able to get the things that your neighbors get? You're not able to go on the vacations that they are able to go on? And that thought probably streams through your mind. Well, gee, if I just stopped giving to God's missions, I'd be able to do and get all of these things. That's the way the world thinks. It's not the way the Christian thinks. We're the lights of the harbor. We guide the ships, those people that are looking for Jesus Christ, looking for salvation. We guide them through the reefs, through the rocks, safe to the docks of salvation. We are the lights on the runway. We are showing people how to live in integrity. We're showing people how awesome our God is by the way we speak, by the way that we live, by the movies that we watch, by the pursuits that we have, the endeavors and the hobbies. And again, the power is in our distinction. Light is utterly distinct from darkness. But light is also, thirdly, used as a warning or an exposing signal for danger. The flashing warning light on the car can save you from 
serious malfunction, costly repairs. The flashing light on the highway can warn you of danger that is ahead, maybe a bridge that is out. Listen, there are times, Christian brothers and sisters, where we've got to be that flashing light, and we've got to warn non-believers, we've got to warn other believers that the direction that you're going in is going to end in your destruction. And sometimes when we illuminate that light, when we dare speak to them, it's going to anger people. Listen, you've got to be ready for it. It will expose people's sins. It will expose their attitudes and their conduct. But you've got to love them enough. I've got to love them enough to say what needs to be said and do it with love. I, I love what I read this last week. There was an older lady that was the schoolmaster of her school. And she never, it said, never ever would correct a pupil without her arm around his shoulders. Listen, love must inundate and it must undergird all correction. That is the light of God. It's the mercy that floods the hearts of the Christian so that they could be a peacemaker. But light held under a bushel will not illuminate, it will not guide, and it will not warn. You know, there's a story of a Christian who got a job in a labor camp. Billy Sunday, that evangelist in New York City, used to be a major league baseball player, used to tell this story. It was a a Christian, got a job in a labor camp filled with exceedingly ungodly men, and a friend heard that he'd been hired, and he said to this Christian, if those men ever find out you're a Christian, you're going to be in for a hard, hard time. That friend came back in town a year later, found that Christian, ran into him and and said to him, well, did they give you a hard time because you're a Christian? Here's the response of the Christian in that labor camp. You ready? I hope you hear this. He says, no, not at all. They didn't give me a bit of trouble. They never even found out. Listen, if you don't want trouble, then keep that light under the bushel. Don't put salt in your conversation. But if you put salt in your spiritual diet and you live it out and you help keep moral corruption at bay and you put a taste of God in people's lives and you hold that light high and show them the way to Jesus Christ, show them the holiness of God, you will get trouble. They will not love you all the time. And sometimes they're going to persecute you. So let me ask you, do the men and women where you work clearly know you're a Christian? Do the kids at school, your classmates, do they really truly know that you are a follower of Jesus Christ? Do your neighbors clearly know? Do you own a business? And if so, do your customers clearly know that you love Jesus? Christians can be powerful. And we get to see what they can do, verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And I'm going to be brief. Number three, disciples are to influence their society. You know, the Westlands are missionaries in Colombia, and they wrote 
the following in their prayer letter, quote, driving through Christmas traffic, listen to this, because I think we can identify with this, fighting the drizzling rain, I chanced on a four-year-old little girl. She was wet, cold, shaking. Her clothes were ragged, her hair was matted, and her nose was running, and she was walking between the cars at the stoplight, washing headlights because she was too short to wash the windshields. And a few people rolled down their money, gave her a couple coins. Others honked for her to get away from their vehicles. As I drove away, the Westland said, 50 cents poorer. I raged at God for the injustice in the world that would allow this situation. I said, God, how could you just stand by helpless? And later that evening, God came to me softly with that still, small voice and responded not in like kind in my rage, but with his tenderness. And he said, I have done something. I created you. Christian, that's you and that's me. We have the power to influence our society. You have the power, listen, you have the power, it doesn't matter your age, to influence your school and your college and your workplace and your neighborhood and your church. That's your power. You are salt. You are light. Jesus isn't embellishing terms. And the church is a kingdom of God made visible. We are to be salt and light, and we hold back evil, and we guide people to Jesus for hope and salvation. But listen, here's the daunting, and can I say it, the damning evidence. The church has lost much of its influence. The world influences us more than we influence it. But that cannot be, and Jesus shows us the way to be influencers. We're to live visibly. We're to do good in such a way that will get people's eyes on Jesus. And Peter tells us there's no better time than now in the dark times, even in the times of persecution. He writes, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you're going to be blessed. Have no fear of them. Don't be troubled. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. And always, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yeah, but you got to do it with gentleness and respect. Don't get on and blaze your trail on Facebook and drop political posts of anger and vehement and impotent rage. Okay, I added that in a little bit to Peter. But it's what we see. So that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Always be prepared to make a defense, he says. I'm going to be about one more minute. But this is what he's saying. We're to live such brightly lit, visible lives that people will ask, why do you live this way? Why are you different? And that's the power that we have. That's the light that is going to shine on our good works. This is our calling. This is what we are sent out to do in the kingdom of God all over the earth. Are we living salty lives so that our holy lives hold back corruption that is right around us? Are we like that ring of salt? And our jobs, our places of employment are blessed because of the righteous in it. 
And our schools are blessed because of the righteous students that are in it. Are we living that way? Is our social media activity leaving a good taste of God? Is your work ethic salty? Are you, hand, are you handing, are you working rather hard work days in a way that people see Christ? Not complaining at the end of the day. Listen, you complain at the end of your day. You just rendered your salt worthless out in the street. You have no influence over the unbelievers where you work. Is your life lit up with the glory of Christ guiding people to him? They want to know the reason you're different. Is your light public so that everyone around you knows that you're a Christ follower. Here's our calling. We are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. Look what it says, and I'm done. So let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. And here's what the unbeliever cannot do. And give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That is your calling, and that is mine. Amen.